This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And Jacqueline Maley joins us today to talk about the ongoing attacks on the Prime Minister's character, which have sort of been coming thick and fast, really. But PK, before we venture down that dark and slimy tunnel, let's talk about the polls because we are five minutes to midnight on the eve of an election. We've had a swag of polls released this week, taking the temperature ahead of things formally kicking off. These polls all seem to agree that Labor's in poll position heading into the big race. But, you know, as we saw last election, PK, that's not the whole story. Things usually tighten pretty quickly, don't they, when an election's called? Yeah, that's right. They they really do. Let's just get a sort of sense of why. I think the engagement of the vast public really sharpens up in an election campaign and then really sharpens even further, particularly those undecided key voters, those swinging voters. And we know there are a whole lot more of them now than there used to be. The idea of rusted on voters has been disrupted enormously, that that really tightens up in the last couple of weeks and even in the last days. So, It will tighten up, and that is a pretty key part for the Prime Minister trying to come back, that he knows that. But certainly the budget was meant to be a pivotal moment, Fran, in trying to have a kind of bounce for the government. The polls released this week show the Coalition starting the campaign a fair way behind, at least on a national level. And actually, to be honest, I don't think the bounce that the government wanted from the budget was delivered. Uh, And I'm not surprised by that personally. Uh, In fact, if you really drill down into the data and the nine papers did some fantastic work, hats off to David Crowe for some of his analysis on this. It does demonstrate that while perhaps voters liked things like cheaper petrol prices, of course, after those staggeringly high prices um, in terms of filling up a tank, that didn't necessarily lead to, yep, and I'm going to switch my vote now. It's it's just not, it's not, you know, one plus one equals two. It doesn't work like that. So they do start a w- way off behind. If you speak to people inside those political parties, they'll tell you it's a lot tighter in some of those key marginal seats. And of course, it will be a seat by seat battle. You'll hear much different messages in different parts of the country. Uh, I would still prefer to be Labor than the Prime Minister starting this far behind. And as you mentioned, after leak, after leak, after leak against the Prime Minister's character, this is not where he'd want to be at the beginning of a campaign. No, and I think we mentioned last week that certainly, uh, well, perhaps we haven't, but the the gap that most of the polls show, if you look at two-party preferred numbers, if we trust them or we don't trust them, but what they're saying is Labor is either eight points ahead or ten points ahead, two-party preferred. It is worth noting that that is a significantly bigger gap than the polls that were released this time in, just before the campaign last election. So the Prime Minister has sort of a bigger mountain to climb. How does he narrow that gap, PK? That's the question. I mean, for a start, he has to get some clear air to get his messages out. And on, this week, almost every day, has been hijacked by 
I guess you call it friendly fire, allegations of bullying, of lying, of politicising flood funding. Maybe we can characterise those as character issues. He really needs to get these to disappear. But how damaging have they been already and how does he get out from under this? Oh, it's it's impossible to get out because what happens is that if that's the story every single day and there's a new angle, a new person saying something one after the other, it becomes self-fulfilling, right? So you go to your press conference and while I'm sure he wants to talk about the economy or national security or something that suits his narrative, all of a sudden he's fielding questions on character, on trust. These are things that he doesn't want to be talking about because they are already big weaknesses for him. So let's talk about something really specific that happened this week. He, he faced an attack from outgoing New South Wales Liberal Catherine Cusack. Let's just be clear about who she is. She's in the New South Wales Parliament. She resigned spectacularly over what she thought was unfair New South Wales flood crisis money. She thought it was not being distributed fairly, that it was politicised. And then she went in on the hardest attack in terms of character. She spoke to me on breakfast issues. He's now using his role as Prime Minister to bully New South Wales government and the flood victims because he's not getting his way. There's that word again, bully. It just keeps coming up, doesn't it? It does. So she also called the Prime Minister a ruthless, self-serving bully, as we say, that he lacks uh, moral compassion. What's interesting, uh, lots of people in the government have been saying to me, yeah, but she's no fan of our side. She's becoming, she's become more and more uh, kind of questioning of her side of politics for some time now, is the argument they make. But either way, she was from the progressive wing in her party, the moderates, Conchetta Ferraventi-Wells, who stood up in the Senate and made the, the the comments about the Prime Minister's character, calling him bully after the budget, she's from the very hard right, the conservative wing of the New South Wales Party. So you've got two different sides, two different women, two walks of life very different, saying very similar things about him. I don't think that's helpful for him. They know it's not helpful for him. They've had others out, other senior people saying, you know, I've had great experiences with the Prime Minister. And you know what? If numerically, there are more people saying that than 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 the people saying the opposite. But it's now becoming sort of a chorus, if you like, Fran, and that's an issue for him because he has already been under pressure on these character issues. Mm. Uh, he did have one very important win this week. Uh, it was a it was a big deal, really. The New South Wales Court of Appeal threw out that challenge to the Prime Minister's right to overrule the New South Wales branch and pre-select candidates, Liberal candidates, in the number of seats. Critical, of course, because there were 12 candidates, to so the fate of whom were hanging in the balance, and until the court ruled... The PM really couldn't call an election because obviously you can't go to the polls if you have got blank spaces against the Liberal Party. <laughs> it's 12, kind of awkward. 12 seats, that's awkward. Um, he won that. Now the New South Wales Liberal member who mounted that challenge has sought leave to appeal in the High Court. We're recording this on Thursday. That will happen in the court today. His name is Matthew Kamenzuli. Uh, he's, uh, they're moved now to kick him out of the Liberal Party for his trouble, though I understand people, a lot of Liberals aren't too happy at that. They think that's a bit over the top. But anyway, this is all a bit of a sideshow to some extent, PK, except it points to some ongoing level of fury amongst some of the Liberal rank and file in New South Wales, the Prime Minister's home state. It's never great to head into an election campaign with trouble in paradise. The party faithful, they're like your balmy army, aren't they? They're the ones (laughs) who come out, rain or shine, knock on doors, hand out leaflets, fundraise. You need them, particularly on election day. So this was very messy. The Prime Minister got there in the end in the court this week. But, you know, maybe it's not quite over either. No, it's, it's, it's not quite over either way. 
how did it come to this? I mean, the recriminations after Election Day are going to be, whether the coalition wins or not, regardless, uh, the extent of the recriminations might be slightly different, but there will be recriminations either way about why this was left so late and the, the broader dynamics that were playing out because you just, you cannot leave your political party this vulnerable so late. I mean, I had the uh, Premier of New South Wales on RM Breakfast and he didn't hold back, did he, Fran? No. He was pretty clear about what he thought of it. He was always, was la- I don't know if you heard it in his tone, but he was almost kind of laughing at his political party. Like, what, what's, you know, I can't, what is this? Yeah, it's just, it's madness. But everyone in the Liberals seems real outraged about how it's been handled and and why this has happened. The Prime Minister's defence in an interview on 7.30 with Lee Sowles this week was that he intervened, so he tried to, you know, stamp his own candidates on rather than letting these plebiscites, these um, grassroots votes happen, because he was standing by women candidates. I'm asked all the time, Lee, why wasn't the Prime Minister do more about getting good women in Parliament and stand up for the women in Parliament? See, I stood up for the women it in my ju- team. It wasn't just women. Yeah. No, well, it was, that's what the, the principal reason was, and, and people know that. Okay, so the principal reason he's identified for his intervention was that he was defending women. Now, let's, let's just interrogate that claim. Actually, half were men, so there goes that part of the claim. He is correct that there are some some women there. One example is female cabinet minister Susan Lee. Uh, she and others have backed him. In fact, she genuinely really feels like he did come in and and defend her. So that is actually true. Uh, was it based his decision on the basis of gender? I don't know if that really has been proved at all. But that's the argument he's making because that's what politicians do. They use opportunities and he's trying to spin what is no doubt a crisis because it's been left to the last minute to look like um, he's, you know, the saviour of women's representation in his party. I don't think that was the sole motivation. I do think there's a lot about control and power of his, his, you know, and his own stamp on the party. But perhaps some of it was motivated by an interest in the sitting members. I'm not sure if the gender element is the overwhelming one, but in the sitting members, people like Trent Zimmerman, uh, Susan Lee, not being uh, shunted out like this. There is no doubt that's some of his concern. Yeah, sure. And switching a bit here to the other side of politics, opposition leader Anthony Albanese made aged care a key platform of his election pitch when he stood in his budget reply. He outlined his five-point plan, PK, to address the problems pretty much identified by the Royal Commission. The government came straight out on the attack with that age-old catch cry of where's the money coming from, um, particularly when it comes to the across-the-board pay rises that Anthony Albanese committed Labor to in government, also the insistence on a registered nurse on deck 24 hours a day in residential aged care. These were two of the key promises from the opposition. It'll be expensive. We certainly don't even have enough nurses, really, in the country trained at the moment to fulfil the promise right now, but... The opposition leader, and in the face of some of those criticisms, wasn't taking a backward step. We heard in the Royal Commission stories about older Australians lying on the floor, begging, needing help to be got up. Is that a circumstance which is sustainable? That is a major cost. That is a human cost. And I find it astonishing that we're reducing humanity to this debate as a result of a coalition that just shows itself to be heartless. 
I think by and large the aged care stuff worked for Anthony Albanese this week, PK. He got certainly a lot of good pictures out of it and a you know, strong grab like that. He pledged on the night on the budget on his budget reply speech to spend an extra $2.5 billion facing, uh, fixing the problems in aged care if Labor's elected. But then Labor had to admit pretty much immediately it would cost billions more than that to fund the increases of the, um, of the pay to the whole workforce when the Fair Work Commission eventually hands down that judgment. So, you know, they were vulnerable. They didn't have all the details they probably should have. It will cost billions. But given both sides have now committed to implementing to some degree the Fair Work Commission judgment when it's handed down later in the year, there will be an increase in the pay across the workforce in aged care. That will cost billions. There's no getting around it, no matter who's in government. No, and and as the Coalition describes, it, it's baked in funding, right? So this is not one-off funding. It's built in. It becomes an ongoing cost to the budget. And, and that's definitely, you know, something that I think all political parties should answer. One point I will make that I think does matter is that there is always scrutiny on Labor's ongoing funding. But, you know, the coalition has made all sorts of funding announcements in relation to defence and national security, other issues. Uh, the same question should be asked of them. How are they going to fund ongoing in terms of structural reform in the budget? other ongoing costs. All those questions should be applied to all sides of politics, not just Labor. But it does seem to me sometimes it's skewed to Labor because of the economic narrative, uh, which is accepted, which is that the coalition is better with money. That's accepted in the political class sometimes. The question should be asked of both. I thought it was a bit of an own goal for the government to focus on the funding, especially when they quickly had to concede that when it came to pay rises, they would also have to stump up. And also on this issue, we all know the cliche, budgets are about priorities. What Labor was able to say pretty quickly was, yes, and this is our priority. And the government does not want, I think, to be in the space where they don't see this or treat it in terms of the optics as a priority because this one is a burner. People are grumpy about this stuff. There was a royal commission and there is a certain sense that people need to deliver in governments whatever side they're on on this issue. And also I think there's a small point that we're heading to, you know, deficits and debt of $1 trillion in the out years. So where's the money coming from? Well, at the moment, both sides of they're all borrowing. We'll be borrowing it. It's it's coming Both on the never never. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, so so everyone should answer how they're going to do it, and that's the answer. And then the structural questions should be asked to both sides. So, mm. you know, it's not just overage care. It's about all the funding. How is the all the funding going to be um, maintained? They're good questions and they're important questions. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Jacqueline Maley, columnist and senior writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room. Thank you for having me. Jackie, um, PK and I have been talking a bit about, you know, how the polls this week have, have Labor sort of well ahead at this moment. That's national polls. But, you know, we all know that an election isn't decided with the national vote. It's decided seat by seat, in a sense. So have you had a look at this, where this election will be won or lost? I'm not just talking, you know, select seats, but demographics. I know you have been looking at the demographics, if that's going to come into play and how the parties are going to play to that. Yeah, and I think this is the thing that the party machine is so hyper aware of. And I think in our coverage, like as journalists, sometimes we miss um, because we're so focused on the national picture and what's happening in Canberra. But um, yeah, all all either party cares about in the election is the marginal seats and maybe seats that are not officially marginal, but ones that they might be able to hope to pick up because of the particular circumstances that, of that seat. 
Um, so really, it doesn't kind of matter what happens on the national stage. It just matters um, what happens in those seats. And in terms of demographics, like I wrote last week about how there's, you know, Scott Morrison has has had a much publicised woman problem, capital W, capital P, um, during his term of government, this last term of government. But what you know, was sort of missed, I think, a little bit in the budget coverage is that's, that the budget was really squarely aimed at women and by which I mean not necessarily card-carrying feminists but people, women who are managing household budgets, w- women who care about the cost of living, women who are affected by inflation because they're the ones who run household budgets and mm. men as a rule, like, this is a huge generalisation but this is what the polling and the research shows, men tend to worry about the economy more in a macro sense and women worry about it more in a micro sense because they're trying to find money, again, as a generalisation, they're trying to find money for school uniforms and school camp and, um, mm. you know, and holidays and all that stuff, you know, what it's like yeah. to balance a, a Yeah, kids' dance budget. lessons and all the things yeah. that kids ask you to do and you have to oh somehow tra- keep... Yeah. yeah, sorry, I've just school projected it. My kid doesn't hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's like, okay, let's try and do this. Um, Jacqueline, the PM says he's very serious about having great women in his ranks. Now, we heard him earlier, we were talking about it, just Fran and I, um, telling Lee Sales he was standing up for women, that's why he insisted on his captain's picks. Was he standing up for women like he says? Is that what this is about? Well, yes, in a sense. I think, um, you know, it's funny because the Batuta Advocate is like running this whole series of things about him being um, a feminist ally. It's <laughs> so funny. I mean, the Batuta so is so good. funny most of the time, but I do not know how they get their finger on the pulse so quickly. Honestly, they're funny. I know. I know. This sort of Damascene um, conversion to feminism that's, that Morrison's had. But I mean, that it is a bit funny, but in a sense, it's actually true because, you know, I mean, these fights between the basically the the local branch members who in the Liberal Party tend to be a bit more right-wing, a bit more on the fringe in that sense, and the Labor Party on the other fringe, Um, they don't and, you know, there sometimes there is branch sucking that's going on. Um, they don't particularly care about selecting female candidates. And in the case of Susan Lee, I think she was going to be, you know, was in danger anyway from a locally sort of sourced candidate who was, mm. you know, a completely inexperienced, young, hard right um, young man. So the optics at a national level and at a party level of, you know, at a brand level even if you, if mm. you use that term, of removing Susan Lee... Who who's this experienced female minister, senior female in the government. For no good reason. For no good reason. Yeah. So, I mean, Morrison's right in that sense that he does need to pre-select. He, the party needs to pre-select more women, right? He knows that. He gets that because it's a branding problem for the Liberal Party and that's why, they're, you know, they're bleeding votes kind of, um, you know, in, in from the, their moderate wing to independence, for example. You look at all the independent candidates who are running, you know, under that sort of climate action banner, they're all the kinds of women that the Liberal Party should be pre-selecting um, and having as its own. And I think Morrison does get that. So while I don't think he um, has read the female eunuch, while I don't think, <laughs> you know, um, he's going out to lunch with Wendy McCarthy, um, dare I say it, Grace Tame, he... Um, he definitely gets it, I think, at a political level because, you know, he's a pragmatist. Just on that issue, because I think that's really interesting, I think, and help me out here, that the public perception is that he's kind of this hard-right conservative. But mm. actually, if you look at what's going on with a factional war in New South Wales, for those who know it more intimately, and it is our job, he's not in 
the in cahoots with the hard right that have been trying to do some of this recruitment and trying to get um, candidates up. No. So what he and his lieutenants had been doing has been quite the opposite, right, Jackie? Yeah. Even though he's seen as a conservative, and he is, I'm not saying he's not a conservative prime minister, but that he's actually, the, the, the factional play is a bit more complex than that, right? Yeah, well, in New South Wales, there's this weird situation where you have like the moderates who are at war with, um, you know, are, are in cahoots with the with the right. Um, so they tend to cooperate with each other. And then you have the soft right or the middle right. Um, and that's where Morrison is. And they sort of are at war with everyone and definitely at war with the moderates. Um, but it's, I mean, when I think it all gets mixed up, particularly with this pre-selection stuff, because a lot of the candidates that, or some of the candidates that Morrison was trying to protect by going over, you know, the head of the grassroots party were, were moderate candidates like Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney, who just somehow got like flung into this mess. Um, so it's not, it's, yeah, I think first and foremost, Morrison's a pragmatist and he's quite transactional, like he'll work with who he needs to work with. Um, but he's definitely not aligned with that faction, that hard right faction, not at all. No, but there's still the point, I suppose, that whatever the reasoning was, and if, I mean, I think half the new candidates selected, pre-selected by the Prime Minister were women, so that's only half, but, you know, there's still the argument that this should have been sorted out a lot earlier, and if he had, his authority of the party was sound, then why didn't he, you know, make it extremely clear to the New South Wales, his own branch of the Liberal Party, that they needed more women, that they, got, you know, they needed to pre-select more women and get onto this a lot earlier. But look, that aside, Jack, there was the Prime Minister had another problem this week, I thought, which was the publishing of that text message that was way back from 2020 during the fires between Gladys Berejiklian and an unnamed sitting Cabinet Minister. These are the ones Peter Van Onselen raised at the press club with the Prime Minister, describing the Prime Minister as a psycho and a horrible, horrible person. Now, you know, that's old news in a sense, um, though we saw the publication of them this week, which I thought was quite powerful. But the new news was the interview from a guy named Michael Toke on the project last night. That's the man that Scott Morrison beat in the pre-selection battle for the seat of Cook way back in 2007. Connie Ferravanti-Wells relit that fuse in her budget night spray against the Prime Minister when she referred to allegations that Scott Morrison had racially vilified Michael Toke in order to knock him out of the race. That was, um, that was explosive when she did that in the Senate, but it was a pretty explosive interview on Channel 10 last night, particularly this claim. This person is a Minister of the Crown. This person I've never had contact with before. This person sent me a text message that's like, hey Michael, this is XYZ, obviously in confidence along those lines. This one I know, I believe you. Do what you feel you need to do. Just be careful. So, allegedly, from Michael Toki, got a text from a, a sitting cabinet minister, a sitting minister anyway, saying, Hey, Michael, I believe you, do what you have to do. That's in the midst of all of this. We don't know who the cabinet minister purported is. We don't know if it's even true. But I think we know, surely it'll have the Prime Minister looking over his shoulder, won't it? Rats in the ranks and all that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the huge there's the the huge huge problem for Morris in in all of this is not just that it's the Liberal Party talking about the Liberal Party, which voters hate. It's that it's so much blue on blue fire. It's just everybody who has worked with him. It's people who have known him intimately, who've sat around a cabinet table with him, or in the case of Gladys Berejiklian, you know, a crisis cabinet table, and um, they're coming up with these terrible personal reviews of his character. I mean, with the Michael Tauk stuff, I do think 
those claims that he's made about um, Scott Morrison using race, particularly in that in that pre-selection battle, are so serious. I just think you've got to take them with a grain of salt because to label someone in that way is very um, is very very defamatory to their character. We don't have any corroboration of that claim at all. Um, but the problem for the prime minister, I think, is not so much well. It's that these claims are being made, but also that people or some people would believe them of him. Um, that's more the problem, that his authority and, I suppose, integrity has been worn away every single time one of these attacks has come up. Jackie, let's move to Labor now, because when people are listening to this, we're probably going to be in full flight election mode uh, after the, the leaders give their keynote big addresses at the start about what they think the election should be about. That's sort of the scene setter at the beginning of every campaign. Uh, and the Prime Minister wants to really zero in on Albanese, trying to define him to the electorate before, I suppose, if you Albanese gets to define himself. Um, he wants to describe Albanese as the most left-wing Labor leader since Gough Whitlam and is really banking on the fact that a lot of the public, the government says in their research, demonstrates that people don't know Albanese that well, even though he's been in the parliament, can I say, a lot longer than Scott Morrison, like he's mm. been there for a long time, but but that, that you know, he's really untested in terms of the campaign, is that going to work for him as a strategy, though? Because that's a character thing. He wants to go character a bit. Like, who is this guy? What does he want to do? But clearly the issue has been the Prime Minister's character too. Is that helpful, a referendum on their characters? Well, I think it it helps um, Albanese a lot more than it does Morrison because Morrison carries with him so much political baggage, which is sort of the downside of incumbency. There's a lot of benefits to it, but that's the downside that there's going to, you know, because he's done stuff in government, there's going to be a lot of people who don't like what he's done. Um, Albanese, although, as you say, he has been in Parliament a long time and he's been a a minister in government, um, he is not known for doing stuff. So at a really basic level, people don't have a lot of reasons to hate him yet. (laughs) Um, But so the character thing could backfire. But I think that, you know, both both sides will run a negative campaign um, alongside a positive campaign. And, and the Liberal Party and the Coalition will probably run a negative campaign much more along the lines of tax and economic credentials because, you know, calling Albanese a, a, a left-wing um, Labor leader, what does that mean? I mean, it means that, you know, the socialists are coming. Yeah, um, you it can't chase them with the purse strings, for instance. Mm. That's all implicit, yeah, isn't it? that's right. That's right. So it's, it's not like, you know, uh, I suppose there's a bit of a cultural thing like, you know, what if he renames the Cooks River or something like that? But um, <laughs> but, um, but um, mostly it's like, yeah, you can't trust these guys. They're, you know, they're socialists. They're going to take, they're going to tax you and give all your money away. How vulnerable is Anthony Albanese though? Just looking on, we know Labor's pretty nervous going to this election. They're bruised from that election loss last time when they, they and everyone thought they had it in the bag really. So they're pretty nervous about this. The government, we know its tactic is to put maximum pressure on Anthony Albanese because Scott Morrison thinks he's vulnerable, he's untested in a campaign situation and he's vulnerable. That's what the government thinks. Is there a risk, do you think, from what we've seen of Anthony Albanese so far when he's put under pressure in press conferences or, you know, over issues like Kimberley Kitching, for instance, that he is not handling that well? He looks a little defensive. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, I I think Anthony Albanese is very seasoned and he's very you know, he he's sort of negotiated his way through the um, the Gillard Rudd years, mm. um, and and also, you know, uh, during minority government, he was obviously the manager of government business. So he knows he can handle sticky situations in that sense. But in terms of the public pressure and also sustained media pressure, so as you say, um, 
you know, he, he hasn't actually fronted a whole lot of press conferences where he's got journalists hammering him um, and really putting him under scrutiny in that way. So, you know, we saw Bill Shorten struggle a bit with that in the 2019 campaign, when particularly when he was asked about costings and he just didn't have a good answer and he got pretty defensive about it. And that ended up being pretty, like, quite a pivotal moment for him, I think, in the campaign. So, um, you know, I mean, I guess Anthony Albanese will be absolutely, like, you know, be getting war-gamed and stress-tested within his campaign headquarters. The other thing is the debate. So, you know, Morrison's pretty good at that, that he knows what he's doing. I think probably prime ministers have a natural ascendancy in debates anyway mm. because they carry with them the authority of the office. But Albanese will, you know, be wanting to really get that right um, and be able to get his tone right. That's what's really hard in those debates, I think. Like you want to be able to lay punches on your opponent but also rise above the whole fray that you're actually involved in. Yeah, and I think that pressure that will be applied on well, both of them, you know, one of them obviously is a very good campaigner. We know that because Morrison pulled off the election victory, the miracle election for the quiet Australians, as he called them, at the last point when he was really written off and look what he did. He is a good campaigner. Albanese is completely untested because he hasn't done it before and there is a whole lot more scrutiny on a leader than you'd expect. Then there are some other complications and I I know this seems like perhaps kind of like detail, detail, but it does matter. For instance, Albanese hasn't yet had COVID, right? Yes. Um, I do think this is a huge one and I know Mm. it's a huge one, not just because I'm vibing on it, but because I know the campaign's really worried about it. Mm. So they've got all of these strict protocols on access to Albanese, but Albanese needs to mix with the public. He's already been doing it in the last week in his time in WA and so forth. Um, If he does get COVID and he ends up being out for the week, um, that is like, that's a crucial week week that will be lost by by, um, Labor. Like these are really kind kind of uncertain sort of things that we haven't faced before, Jackie. Do you think they're they're actually uh, potentially, I don't know if the word dangerous is quite going too far, but, you know, really unsettling for for particularly Labor? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ideal would have been to deliberately catch COVID right about, like, you know, last week. You never want to do that, man. I know, I know. But seriously, I mean, you'd be so worried about it. Um, And I know like one or two MPs are coming out of isolation now just in time to sort of hit the hustings. Um, Yeah, if I mean, if it's a short campaign, we don't yet know when the election will be called for. But if it's a short campaign and you're out for a week, that's like... 20% 20% of the time when you're when you've got to I don't know sit in your camp I, I don't know or maybe if you get it badly then you might not even be able to do anything at all not even sort of um, radio interviews or anything so yeah that's a that's a huge risk um, particularly I think for Albanese not just because he hasn't had COVID yet but because he's the one who needs to really really press the flesh be everywhere show himself to the Australian people walk down streets into shopping malls um, you know let everybody know who he is and and he'll probably Probably benefit as well from a bit of natural curiosity, I think, now that people are like, oh, gosh, I've got to vote in, you know, six weeks. I better go if, you know, members of the public might sort of shake his hand and sort of want to know a little bit what he's about, if you know what I mean. Mm, I do. And the other part is the uncertainty of the public. Now, we saw that pensioner... Uh, have a go at Scott Morrison when Scott yeah. Morrison got into the hustings. That was pretty brutal, right? But it just demonstrates that there is a kind of anger in the community. And when you mix 
with the people. The people are going to tell you what they really think, aren't they, Jackie? They're so unscripted and so um, ungovernable, um, members of the public. <laughs> yeah, Humans. I mean, yeah, this is why they have advanced teams. And I don't know what the Prime Minister's advances were doing in that pub in Newcastle, was it last night? Um, they should have crash-tackled that guy to the crown tonight. I don't know. <laughs> She's joking. People are going to get upset with you. I'm, yes, no, he has the right joking. to his views. Yes. I thought he was great. Like, his stamina, I mean, he was a great Australian, actually. I, and I do love that about Australian politics, like that, they, that you can go up and sort of jab your finger in the Prime Minister's face. Um, but it goes to how they handle it. So how did, yes. how did Scott Morrison handle that? How did Anthony Albanese handle it when he got heckled, <sighs> you know, well, not heckled, but, you know, a, a member of the public tried to ask a question at a press conference in Perth? <laughs> Again, another great Australian. Um I think that, the, look, it's difficult to say you handle it as best you can. I think Morrison sometimes comes off, off a bit hostile. And also it's just when you when you inevitably have to leave these encounters um, and walk away, the, the vision of you, you know, of the Prime Minister walking away from the pensioner, I think is almost more damaging than the, than the exchange itself. Um, so, look, it's not great. I don't, I, I mean, you, you, I think sort of how would um, Hawke have handled that guy or someone who is, you know, a very charismatic leader or even just someone who, you know, Howard wasn't particularly charismatic but he was very good at dealing with the public and he genuinely liked people, he probably would have dealt with him a little bit differently, given it back to him but also being compassionate. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that really does come down to a personal personality thing mm. and how, mm. how you deal with confrontation, you know, from, from ordinary people. Yeah, well, that's right. And it's all about people getting, a, the public getting a look at the real person because how you respond in these that's situations right. tells us a lot more often about who you are. So they're about to yeah. have a very big stress test. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us again. I know you're going to be busy through the campaign, so we appreciate it. It's, it's going to be fun. Thanks for having me. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And it's time for our question time, and we actually have been overwhelmed by your questions. I really thought this one was worth answering, Fran, and it's this. This might be moot by the time you do your next podcast, but what would happen if the PM doesn't go to the Governor-General to request an election? Would it be another constitutional crisis? Would the GG have to sack the PM and appoint another just so it can be called? Now, we are recording this on a Thursday morning. I'm certain that at some point where you listen to it based on your own schedules and your own life, the election may have already been called, in which case the next uh, edition of the party room is going to be a corker. <laughs> so wait for that. I just, can I say, I've heard this on the text line and on Twitter, and I want to address it, this whole habit if Scott Morrison doesn't go to the Governor-General <laughs> and comparing him to Trump. You might not like Scott Morrison and everyone is entitled to their own view on political leaders, but I don't think there's any evidence that this man is the type of man that won't go and call an election within the legal parameters. But if, in terms of the substantial question, yes, it would be a constitutional crisis and, yes, there'd have to be an intervention. That's what would happen. But th there is no evidence that this Prime Minister won't do the thing he's meant to do and go to the Governor-General. He has not indicated that. He has not talked about false votes and, and you know, illegal elections. I understand 
understand we want to see parallels, but I just don't think that he's behaving like Trump on this. No, I agree. Murray, I'm interested that you're exercised by this point, but no, uh, Scott Morrison is not Donald Trump, uh, certainly around this. There is no sign. In fact, Scott Morrison has already said on the public record that in caretaker mode, that's once the election's called, that, you know, if ministers have to make decisions, as they can do during an election campaign, imagine if you're a health decision, there might be something, health minister, you might need to sign off on something, you know, then he is instructed, obviously, and said public is his ministers will, as the convention suggests, it's not in the constitution, it's convention, they will consult with their, with the shadow, the Labor shadow, on those decisions during the campaign. So no sign at all that he's about to shirk kind of constitutional conventions, especially a big one like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Liberal Party wouldn't have it. I mean, no. I, don't think he, I don't think it's his, his instinct at all. I've seen no evidence of that. But also, you know, the, the, our parties are still, you know, centre-left, centre-right broadly, and that's a generalisation, but they're still operating within the rules of convention. Occasionally, you might think there might need to be an integrity commission and things, and I can see that argument, but I don't, I don't think that we have seen the kind of crisis we've seen in the US. And you know what? I'm really happy about that. I'm very, very relieved that that's the case. And that's it for the party room this week. Yep, but keep sending in your questions because we really do love them. And through the campaign, I think it's going to be, you know, really interesting to see where you have questions of things that are coming up through those five or six weeks, whatever it'll be. You can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email us your questions at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Now, Fran um, outed me recently, not in the way that I just made that sound because I'm so out, you know, you don't have to out me there, but on on the fact that I look at the reviews. And so I did to see if it was like cause and effect. You say it, Fran, mock me, ask people to do reviews and whether they do. They did. They did. Lots of them. Thank you. I was like... These people are excellent. I love our listeners. So if you can go and do that again, uh, boost us because it worked and it did and it's wonderful and thank you, even if you, you know, don't always love us, if you can grudgingly respect us, I'll go with that. Thank you so much <laughs> and keep, please, reviewing us. Yep, and we will see you next time we talk to you. It will be in an election mode. We will be in the campaign. We can say that absolutely definitively, can't we, PK? Yeah, we'll be partying the whole campaign together. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.